Amen. Hey, let's pray together. God, you are worthy. You are high and lifted up, far above all of us. And so help us to keep proper perspective of who you are and who we are. As we open up your word this morning, reveal yourself to us. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah. All God's people said, you know, I wasn't planning on this. (laughs) It's always a scary way to start a message off. Uh, I, I sang that song at a concert with Chris Tomlin in San Diego a few months ago, and uh, it was powerful. Loved the song, and it, it really does put Jesus in the right place, that he is the one that is lifted up. Uh, I was in Israel and Jordan a couple weeks ago, and we're in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which tradition has as the crucifixion and the burial place of Jesus. And as I'm standing there at the base of Golgotha, uh, I'm standing there and I'm looking and I, I look over to my right and Chris Tomlin is standing right there, the guy who sings this song. And I looked over and I said, Chris Tomlin. And he said, Matt Davis. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> That's how I kind of played it out in my head. <laughs> I said, hey, my name's Matt. I'm a pastor in Orange County. Saw you in concert a couple months ago. It was great. And what I was really struck by was his humility. Uh, this guy that um, has played all over the world, has written and performed in stadiums and, and sings, wrote lots of the songs that we sing. And just so down there, it was just him standing there. He, he looks at me and says, what am I looking at right here? And I said, oh, and so you want me to show you around? So I got five minutes, I got to walk around at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre with Chris Tomlin. It was kind of fun. And then, out of my own humility, went and posted on social media the selfie that I got with him (laughs) as fast as I possibly could. So let's talk about pride, because obviously I have an issue I thought this message was going to be for all of you, but as I was digging deeper, I thought, oh man, I'm in here all over the place. So somebody once said that preaching and biscuits can both be helped with shortening. And so (laughs) we're going to look at the shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, We're going to look in our series on the Minor Prophets. We're looking at the book of Obadiah. Um, God speaks and God speaks through these prophets to give these messages to Israel and also today to the Edomites, but really they are supposed to hit us. And the message today is about abandoning pride. And it all starts, this this huge thing, everything we're going to read about starts way back in the book of Genesis where we have this sibling rivalry, this feud that takes place between Jacob and Esau. I'm not going to give you too much background, but go to Genesis 25 and just read for a good 10 chapters and you'll see what's going on. But we really want to get to the heart of the matter. And C.S. Lewis talks about our pride uh, in the book Uh, mere Christianity, and I'll read a little bit more out of it later, but here's just a pull quote from it. Uh, and, And this chapter is called The Great Sin. And he talks about a lot of different sins, but this one in particular is called The Great Sin. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. 
It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Right? Isn't it pride that keeps us from crying out to a Savior? It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. It's true. Pride. Scripture talks about we can have pride of the eyes. We can have a pride of our heart. We can have a pride of our spirit. And sometimes we can keep it under wraps. But I believe that God wants to expose this in all of us because this is the thing that takes us down. And this in Scripture is one thing that it says that God is opposed to, that he hates it. And so we have to watch ourselves in it. So what I want us to do is, is look, um, I want to tell you a couple of stories that will kind of give us a background. But God comes against those who put themselves in high places. When you want to elevate yourself, then I want you to understand today as we walk out that God wants to bring you down. First story. What just happened? Oh. Oh, he wants to bring us down. Okay, got it. I'll have to watch that back later and see what happened. All right. First story. King David, he goes to Jerusalem and he wants to take Jerusalem, but at the time it's inhabited by a group of people known as the Jebusites. And so he goes there and he sees that there's the walls there and the people there who are inhabiting at the time, they have... A little bit of arrogance there. They thought that they were well defended. They built up their walls really well. And so this is what they say. Now the king and his men, that's David, went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away. Thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. They said, we are so well protected, so well fortified, you will never get in. In fact, we will put the blind and the lame at the city walls because we are so confident. And they fell. And then... God has a message for the people of Sardis. Now, Sardis is one of the seven cities that are written about in Revelation 2 and 3. And Sardis is right in the middle of the, of the route here. And, and here's the history of Sardis. We actually hiked up to the top. It's a big old hike when you go up to Sardis. You go up to the top, but all you see today are, are ruins. But it was on a trade route. And it was wealthy. There was a river there that they would use fleece to capture the gold there. And so they had everything. The people of Sardis had everything. Cyrus comes against it in the 6th century. Alexander the Great comes against it in the 4th century. But there's these battles and there's these descriptions of what took place there. And Sardis fell asleep because they were so confident and arrogant in their security. And so in Revelation chapter 3, the message to the people of Sardis, and when you hear about this, that they had these battles that were taking place, and they're all, ah, we'll be fine. This is what it says in Revelation 3. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Therefore, if you do not wake up, 
I will come like a thief and you do not know at what hour I come to you. So God is coming against the people of Sardis saying, you fell asleep at the wheel. There's actually a story of a soldier that he, as he's standing on the top of the wall, his helmet falls down. And so he actually climbs down and there's this little secret passageway. He comes around, picks his helmet up and goes back. Well, the invading army sees this and they say, we found a way in and they destroy Sardis. And so you can read about and you can look at the story of the fall of Sardis. But the one I want to talk about today is found in the book of Obadiah. And this is about the people of Edom. Now, we can actually hit it all. All 21 verses today. If you go to Obadiah, it's right after Amos. And it says this. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In the loftiness of your dwelling place, you say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now, God is bringing down the Edomites, but they have this pride that their security is in the clefts of the rock. This area is southeast of Israel. It's in an area, in fact, the, the capital of Petra, or the capital of Edom is Petra today. This is the region. This is what it looks like. In fact, they said that you only needed 12 men to guard the city because there's all of these narrow passageways and tunnel ways that really you could just put a few guys up there and you could only get one horse through at a time that they could throw down boulders and you would be totally safe. And so people didn't even, for centuries and centuries, did not even know that this place existed other than biblical accounts and some extra biblical, some historical accounts from guys like Josephus. It was in 1812 that a guy named Johann Burkhardt said, I keep reading this. He was a follower of Jesus. And he said, I need to search out this place. In 1812, he finds a guide and says, take me to this place. And he goes and he finds people who are still worshiping Esau. Now, I want you to get a sense of the background of what's going on here. If you go to Genesis 25, we have Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca is pregnant with twins. And she senses even in her womb that there is a battle taking place. And she goes to the Lord and, and God says, you have two warring nations in your womb. And there's a prophecy that's given that the younger will serve the greater. The first one comes out and his name is Esau. They call him Esau because he was hairy. And then the next one comes out and his name is Jacob. And as he comes out, he's holding on to the ankle of his brother. And his name means supplanter. He's going after his brother. I mean, that's a bad sign, right? If you deliver twins and they're already fighting in the womb, you have some problems going on. And this battle takes place between the two of them. 
over the years. And what really culminates is Esau is an outdoorsman. He's a hunter. He likes to catch the meat. He cooks it for his dad. Everything's really great. And then you have Jacob who is hanging out. He's a little bit more towards home. And there is this exchange. And you can read about it in Genesis. But it says that Esau comes in one day from hunting and he's incredibly hungry. He's famished. And his brother happens to be cooking this nice pot of stew. And he says, I need some of that. I'm about to die. And Jacob says, I'll give you some, but I want you to sell me your birthright. It's going to cost you. And he was hungry enough that in one hour, the entire historical landscape changes. And he takes a pot of stew and exchanges his birthright. We don't understand this because we don't live in the society. But if you were the one who had the birthright, you would be... Generally, it was always the oldest, and you would get twice the amount of the inheritance, but there was also a spiritual blessing that came with it. Esau's all, I'm just hungry. Give me some of that stuff. It was a stew. It was a red stew. It probably had red meat in there, and it was called, because of this, he, he took the soup, and his name was Edom, which means red. So he's hairy, and he's red, and out of this whole exchange, Jacob knows what's going on. And later when it comes for Isaac to die, Isaac gives the blessing, the spiritual blessing to Jacob and not to Esau. And it, it changes everything. And because of this, there is this enmity between the two of them. Now, there's a pride that we see in Esau that doesn't get fully exposed until we see it blown up. If you, if you have a, a bicycle tire and there's an inner tube in there and there's a hole in there, if it's deflated, you don't really see where the hole is. But then you put a bunch of air in that thing and now it's blown up. You can generally find the hole because now you can hear where the air is coming out. What you see in Esau, and it feels a little bit like hidden as you read through this, but he wasn't concerned with spiritual things. He was all, just give me the stew and we'll be okay. It's now blown up in the Edomites. This pride that just blows up and now it's run rampant. And there's a separation between the brothers and over the years there's battles and there's enmity. In fact, even as the Israelites, the house of Jacob, as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, they come up to Edom and they send messengers. Can we pass through here? They're going, they just like to go along the King's Highway. They say, we won't even take any of your water. We won't take any of your resources. And Edom shows up with an army and says, back off. You're not coming through here. This is a problem. And so God is addressing the pride of these people who thought that they could never be defeated. So look again, verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. 
you got to understand, there are a few things that are being addressed with their pride. The first thing that they have is the pride in their security. We are up here in the lofty places and nobody's going to bring us down. But then their wealth, the pride in their wealth that we have all of this. Because they were so secure and there's all of these caves, they say that Petra at one time held one million people. And the waterfall was about one to two inches a year. But people would send, this was like the Cayman Islands of the day. Everyone sends all of their treasures and all of their money so it would be safely stored here. Well, it says that the robbers, the thieves will come and they will take everything. Not just what they need, they will take everything. And so when Johann Burkhardt came in 1812 and he's exploring the caves, guess what? There was not a thing left. Verse 6, oh, how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set an ambush. There is no understanding in him. Even the allies, you have pride in all of your relationships, and all of the people that you know, they will be taken from you. Will I not on that day, in verse 8, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau, then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Timon, which was considered the center of all wisdom. Then your mighty men will be dismayed so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Pride is run amok with the Edomites. And so they think that they're okay. They're sitting up high on their tower and God says, I'm going to bring you down. That's what God is promising. But not only that, he says that this is the why. Look in verse 10. Because of violence to your brother, Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. I want you to see something here. I want you to picture mountains. And I want to just show you a couple of words that are, are important to this study. Um, the first word is gaon. It means to be placed high or to be tall or lifted up. This is the associated word when we're talking about pride and arrogance and conceit in the Old Testament. And there's another word, and it's called shafel. And shafel means to be or to bring low or to be humble. And you have these two words, and I think what is going on when we're talking about pride is pride is trying to create Gaps. Pride is, there, there's a certain competition to pride. Pride is looking down at those who are below you and saying, you are not where I am. Now, I want you to just hear this. If you've never read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, it is a must-have. But listen to what he says about this. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. 
If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, the pride has gone. Now, I want to illustrate this, and I want to show you. There is something about this looking down. And if you take a a large stick like this, if I, I want you to watch where my eyes are looking. And I'm holding it flat. There's nothing tricky about this. But if I just fix my eyes by looking down at my hand, I want you to see what goes on here. And I'm pretty good at this. Just trust me. That was pride. I'm sorry. I want you to see something, though. When I take my eyes from looking down, and now I fix them and look up. Right? Let me try it again. See a difference? You shouldn't clap. That's not going to help me with my pride. (laughs) As C.S. Lewis goes on, he says that if we continually look down, then we're never looking up. And there's something important about looking up. When we look up, we see God. When we look up, we see the greatness of who he is in relation to ourselves. When we look up, we see that he is the sovereign and powerful almighty God. But when we look down, we're looking down at everybody else saying, look how high I am in comparison to all of them. This is what Edom was doing. Look at this. Look in verse 12. He says, do not gloat. That word gloat, literally it means to look down. Do not look down on your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. As the house of Jacob, the Israelites are being war-torn, the older brother of Jacob, the Edomites, are watching and rooting it on. They're standing at the crossroads as the house of Jacob, the Israelites, are running away and they are capturing them, they are killing them, they are taking their loot, they are rooting it on. In fact, you could look in the Psalms and, and it says, Edom, you are busted. In fact, let me, I'll just, I'll read it. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. Not raise it up, but R-A-Z-E, to bring it down. Edom was rooting against their little brother saying, take them down. And because of that, God says, you who think you're so lofty, I am going to bring you down. And so it goes with Edom. So it goes with all nations. 
And I would say, so it goes with us. In verse 15, the day of the Lord, which is a phrase that's used often in the Minor Prophets, it says, the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will continually drink. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never existed. This is the takedown of Edom, but there's a restoration to come for Israel. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will possess their possessions and then the house of Jacob will be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be as stubble. I wish I had time. I would tell you that even as Jerusalem in 70 AD was being torn to pieces as Rome was there and Titus was coming in. Josephus writes about this in the wars. He says that there were 20,000 Edomites left on the planet. And they heard that Rome was coming to destroy the people of Jerusalem. Edom did not want this to happen because they didn't want Rome to start moving into their territory. So they came in to try to help fight Rome off. And it says that the last 20,000 they come in, 8,500 were killed and burned in the temple at Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the rest of them were killed outside of the city. And at that point, there was no more Edom. They literally were as stubble. It's been 2,000 years. And they will set them on fire and they will consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau and those of the Shephelah. Shephelah, the word there, Shephel, it's to be made low. Those are the lowlands. Those of Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. God is going to come against the nations, all of the nations who are prideful, And God is going to restore his kingdom in Jerusalem and over all of the nations. The question for us is how is our pride? The question for us is where are we at? Where are our hearts at? I think we have to realize two things. As we read a passage like this that feels so distant and so far away from us, is we have to realize that we can be just as bad as Edom. That my pride can get the best of me. I think the second thing is that we have to question, can God offer me any hope? Can God offer me any hope? Is there any hope for us in our pride? I want you to take out the bulletin if you haven't. It's probably should have told you that in the very beginning, but... On the back of it, 
I, I synthesized and edited uh, an article that talks about, it's, it's talking about this essay that Jonathan Edwards wrote, and it's the seven subtle symptoms of undetected pride. And as I read it, that was the check for me. And I just want to like look at a couple of these. If you're wondering, like, does pride like show up? If you don't detect it in your own life and heart, then this would be a good list for us to go through. Fault finding. While pride causes us to filter out the evil we see in others, it also causes us to filter out God's goodness in others. We sift them, letting only their faults fall into our perception of them. When I'm sitting in a sermon or studying a passage, it's pride that prompts the terrible temptation to skip the spirit surgery on my own heart and instead draft a mental blog post or plan a potential conversation for the people who really need to hear this. Have you done that? I mean, I've sat where you sit and I think to myself, I hope that my wife is getting this right now. (laughs) And she's over there thinking the exact same thing, right? But it's fault finding. That is pride, a harsh spirit. Speaking of other sins with contempt or frustration or judgment, superficiality. When pride lives in our hearts, we're far more concerned with others' perceptions of of us than the reality of our hearts. And so we find a way that the things that look bad outwardly, we're going to make sure we cut off. But pride is something that we can maybe keep inwardly. Defensiveness, presumption before God. I got to read this one. Humility approaches God with humble assurance in Christ Jesus. If either the humble or the assurance are missing in that equation, our hearts very well might be infected with pride. Some of us have no shortage of boldness before God, but if we're not careful, we can forget that he is God. And others of us feel no confidence before God, which sounds like humility, but in reality, it's another symptom of pride. In those moments, we're testifying that we believe our sins are greater than his grace. We doubt the power of Christ's blood and we're stuck staring at ourselves instead of Christ. Desperate for attention, neglecting others. I hope that as we're going through this, that we get this sense that maybe my pride is a little bit bigger than I thought. And God wants to do surgery on us. Humility is a hard thing to sell, friends. It's hard to say to walk in humility. There's some verses on your outline. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. James 4, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. I encourage you to look through some of those. But also on the bottom of the outline are just some things to maybe move the posture of our hearts towards humility. That instead of looking down and saying, look at those poor fools down there that maybe there's some things that we can do to start breaking open the grip that pride has in our lives. Bring a meal to somebody who needs it. Take on a bigger donation than you normally would for VBS snacks this year. I I threw that one in just (laughs) because VBS, you know, it's there. But something to break this power of us being greater. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man in his strength or the rich man in his riches. But if you're going to boast, boast that you have that relationship with God. That that is the source of your humility. And so if God is speaking to us this morning, um, what I want us to do is we're going to prepare to take communion this morning. And here's what we have to think about. 
as we take communion here today. God took on flesh and was here on earth as a fetus came and was born into this world and over and over again as you see the story of Jesus playing out in the narrative he is constantly looking up Jesus is constantly looking up to his father and it says that he emptied himself out emptied himself out of his glory he poured himself out as an offering for each of us and so as we take communion we remember that today his body and his blood poured out if anyone had reason to have pride it would have been Jesus but even Jesus came not to be served but to serve to make his life a ransom for us And so I want to pray for us. We're going to take the the elements. We'll hold them. But I want you to search your hearts. And we invite the work of the Spirit. Lord, search me and know me. So pray with me. God, our hearts are proud. Our hearts become callous. And we need you. But it's our own pride that keeps us at times and says we don't. And so, Lord, take this great sin from us, that you would work in each of us, that you would remove a heart of stone and you would give us a heart of flesh that seeks after you. Give us a heart of humility that we, if we boast at all, that we are boasting that you are greater. So as we take these elements, help us to remember You poured yourself out, that you humbled yourself. You made yourself low. And we put our hope and our trust in you this morning. In Jesus' name.